Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. You've heard of the UN. You've probably also heard of the EU, NATO, the WTO, the ICJ, and particularly these days, the WHO. Maybe you've even also heard of the AU or ASEAN. In today's world, there's a gigantic alphabet soup of organizations that exist between sovereign nations or even above them. Not only is it difficult to remember what's what and who's who, it's almost impossible to actually know what each of these organizations does. You might remember that the UN is a global diplomatic forum, but what the hell does that mean or matter anyway? There's a lot of debate about exactly what these institutions actually do, but one major claim is that they're a bulwark of international peace and prosperity. All of them are mired in bureaucracy and a lot of legalese. It takes a very narrow set of technical skills and knowledge to understand intimately how each of these bodies functions and what they do. But you don't really need or want that. It would take a lot of time. Instead, it'd be a lot more useful to have a kind of general knowledge of what an international institution does and what kinds of power or influence they have so that the next time you read a story about the UN, the WHO, the WTO, the ICJ, the EU, NATO, or anything else, you've got a framework to understand WTF is going on. (laughs) We'll add a a laugh track for that. (laughs) (laughs) We apologize to the listener for that terrible joke, but we couldn't help ourselves. So that's what we're doing here. It's a three-part series on international institutions. In each episode, we'll explore the basics of what they are, whether they work as advertised, and, as you probably figured from the title of the series, whether world peace has put in its two weeks' notice. Today, we'll cover the basics. How do institutions form? What are they? And what do they claim to do? Why are they important for peace? So right off the bat, how do institutions come about? I think answering this question can help us to see what institutions are. So we can start with a very simple example. Take three countries, call them England, France, and Germany. This isn't really a real history of those countries, just using the names because it helps us get sort of an understanding of where they are and how they might relate to each other. So in this fictional history. Sometime along the way, these countries started trading with each other, and they realized that this is a pretty good idea. France has good food, England has good beer, Germany makes good furniture. Everybody's gaining from the exchange. But sometime, France starts receiving odd shipments from Germany. The chairs are shorter than they said. Germany gets upset because England is sending them smaller barrels of beer than claimed. Germany says the chairs are to spec, and England says the same about the beer. The countries then 
realize that the reason this is happening is because they have different measurements. A leader in England means something other than a leader in Germany. So the countries devise standard weights and measures that they can all agree on to ensure that they all know what they're actually trading with each other and what they're each paying each other for. Right. And as trade grows, more agreements and treaties are reached, allowing English ships to unload in certain French ports and French farmers to sell their produce to German traders at certain prices. All is going well. But eventually, Germany starts looking around and it realizes they're the only engineers. Everyone else is growing crops or brewing beer, but Germany knows how to build chairs. So they start building other things, weapons of war. They decide they might as well take the French farms and the English breweries for themselves. Cut out the trade. Why not? France notices this buildup and strikes a deal with England to establish an alliance. England sees that Germany would happily starve them out if they conquered France, and so they agree to sign a treaty, binding England to come to France's aid if they're attacked. Soon, war breaks out when Germany invades France. Within a few years, however, France and England throw Germany out. A peace treaty is reached and signed. After the war, all three countries want to avoid anything like that ever happening again. So, a couple plans are put forward. France offers a plan for each country to delegate certain governing powers to a central body. They'll each still be countries, but the tightening of bonds should avert anybody attacking the other. We'll call their plan the Union. England and Germany, neither of which were invaded... Germany lost the war, but still, better position than France, don't like this plan. They say they'd rather have an international body they each send delegates to, something less committal, to hash out disagreements on a regular basis. This regularization of diplomacy and deal-making should avoid conflict, they say. We'll call their plan the summit. France, of course, acquiesces to the summit. The Union will never have everyone's agreement. Here, our history ends, just as the three countries hope their history will. So then, what are international institutions, and what do they supposedly do? Well, in this history, we can see all kinds of international institutions. The trade deals, the port regulations, the standard weights and measures, the Anglo-French alliance, the peace treaty, the union, and the summit. But all of these is very different. So what ties them all together? Well, broadly, institutions are the rules or even the processes for writing the rules of the game in a society or in politics. Or as the political economist Douglas North puts it, they are the humanly devised constraints that shape human interactions. And they can be formal or informal, right? They can mean something like a written constitution or simply an implicitly agreed upon notion that all parties in a relationship should abide by certain practices. At the domestic level, that is, within countries, we know that institutions reduce the uncertainties of politics and the potential for interpersonal violence by providing forums that regulate behavior and set out processes for solving social problems. Think of American election rules, for example. Well, perhaps until maybe recently. They happen every so many years with certain set positions up for grabs, 
there are rules about how the votes are conducted and what the things you the things of the kinds of things that you can say. This means that opportunities and responsibilities are predictable. The point is to prevent people from constantly contesting the governing powers, preventing them from being able to do their jobs because otherwise they'd always be fending off objections and disputes. The bottom line in the domestic example for institutions is that they make cooperation easier by providing a basic template delineating how interactions should be conducted. I, for, for example, I can more freely go to the market in the middle of town to buy a loaf of bread when I know that any loaf I buy is going to be the same size and isn't going to be full of sand. And if it isn't, I know that I can go to the town's head of markets to get redress and see the swindler banned. All I need to do is look for the competing prices, not do all kinds of research about who's got a legitimate product. At the international level, which is our focus today, the same general definition of institutions holds. But the details get a little bit messier and more complicated. At the domestic level, Institutions usually are backed by the force of a national military or police. They're backed by force. Follow the rules or else. At the international level, that doesn't quite exist in the same way, though you could see similar things happening. Right. The claim is that institutions at the international level shape the behavior of sovereign states by setting rules and expectations, right? Providing forums for solving problems, everyone ends up better off. Think about the trade example that we brought up in our sort of hypothetical scenario. The process of economic exchange actually generates its own costs. Think about the chairs not being to spec, right? You're being cheated by a partner exchange or you're having a, a misalignment of information, that being the weights and measures. Institutionalization of trade practices can reduce these costs for every single following interaction, thus increasing each country's relative gain from trade. Yeah, and you can get a real-world example of this with the World Trade Organization, or WTO, one of those in the alphabet soup. It standardizes trading practices, and it actually has the power to impose economic punishments on nations that are not compliant with the rules. It began as a completely consensual body, meaning that there was little enforcement of its rules, you sort of opted in or opted out. But over time, states came to see that it was beneficial enough that they endowed it with the power to enforce its own decisions. So to sum that up, basically, at the domestic level, institutions set rules and the rules are enforced by the force of the state, the police or, any, or the military or anybody else. At the international level, there are also rules set, but the enforcement is a little bit more complicated because there isn't an international police force, really, that holds a lot of power over states. Exactly. Right? We exist in, as we might say, anarchy. The international system is anarchic, although I think that that explanation is complicated by the alphabet soup itself, so we won't right. dive into that. Right. So that's what international institutions claim they do. But how might this be important for world peace? Well, consider the example of war that we gave in our hypothetical scenario. It's all well and good to have nice trading relationships. In fact, tight trade relationships can, but not necessarily will, 
make war less likely. But most people would like a stronger guarantee than that, that war will be avoided. After all, if the only incentive for avoiding war is wealth, then, of course, at some point, chair-making Germany could rationalize invading France if they've got high unemployment and think they could get food for lower prices with heretofore unemployed Germans farming it, well, then, go to war. But, of course, there are other things besides wealth that discourage or encourage war-making. Domestically, it can be politically costly, and it's very unpredictable and risky. However, even with all these things preventing war, they can all be overcome, and war can break out, as it has, despite many obstacles, for millennia. International institutions come in here. They promise a more effective avoidance of war, or at least one more obstacle to overcome before war is rationalized, making war less likely. But how do they do this? Well, One thing to start off is that international institutions provide forums for leaders to get together with rules for their interactions that might allow them to hash out their issues before war breaks out. They can also set explicit rules against all kinds of things, including aggressive war making or human rights abuses, as in the UN Charter. Everyone agreeing to these rules might inhibit a country breaking them. Or even if a country does, it might justify other countries deciding to respond forcefully to punish those violations, standing in, in a way, for that international police force that we don't really have. Right. One real-world example might be the International Court of Justice, which is a body of the United Nations, which has prosecuted some leaders for committing war crimes. Although it's worth keeping in mind that not all nations including the United States, participate in the International Court of Justice, which can make enforcement more difficult. And this is a somewhat common theme you'll see with international institutions, is that like we showed with the France, Germany, and England, France, who was in a rough position, wanted stronger institutions, right? Because it's more to their benefit. Those more powerful countries, particularly England, for example, which comes out totally on top, is not going to be interested in that because they see themselves as being empowered to protect themselves. So why would they cede power? Right. So, you know, institutions can get some buy-in that really matters, but with the most powerful actors, you'll see a tendency to reject buy-in because they'd rather just stick to their own interests. Especially if they're non-binding, you can just say, well, I'm not going to do this, and what can anyone else do? Um, So, I mean, that's obviously an obstacle to their functioning. But the idea is that as states continue to interact with one another through the framework of institutions, conflict should become less likely as they're habituated towards turning to something more like the wheeling and dealing of domestic politics rather than that of overt physical conflict. And over time, national leaders might even come to internalize these frameworks and see obedience to them as normatively good, not purely a matter of self-interest. Or, in democracies, citizens might come to see abiding these rules as good. And even if the leaders don't, electoral incentives might follow that forces them or encourages them to observe the rules as the citizens would like. Right. There are huge debates, as Philip sort of hinted at just a a few seconds ago, as to the actual efficacy of international institutions in ensuring peace 
But there's this huge alphabet soup of organizations and countries contribute money and time and personnel to making them function. So we probably have some sense that they do something. So just to recap everything that we've gone over really quickly. International institutions can take many forms. There are big differences that we're not getting into, for example, between something like the UN and something like the European Union. Right. Totally different in their structure and in their power and in the kinds of things they do. So they can take many forms. But broadly, you can think of them as being the rules or the arenas for forming rules that shape the behavior and interactions of states. And you might have certain preconceptions about international institutions as being this or that good or bad thing, but they're important because they may help to prevent war by changing incentives and offering lower cost diplomatic alternatives to the very high cost avenue of going to war. All of the debate about whether they work then is critical and can't be ignored. Simplified and real-world examples are helpful, but at a deeper level, there are serious questions about whether international institutions accomplish their goals, or whether there are other reasons for the examples we see of war being avoided. In the field of international relations, there are multiple schools of thought that have different things to say about international institutions. And next episode, we'll go through three of them. First, are the realists who basically say that it's all bogus and international affairs is a missile measuring contest. And then you've got the liberals who say that institutions are mostly working and they work best because of democracies and global capitalism. And lastly, you've got the constructivists who say that people and identities are malleable. Institutions work. And in fact, we might be headed toward a single world government. Don't worry about remembering all of this, but if it sounds interesting, be sure to tune in next week. We'll take a look at these schools and see what we can learn from them and their arguments. In the final episode on this series in two weeks, we'll be exploring that critical final question. What does all this mean for the future of world peace? There's some indication that today we're seeing the breakdown of the relatively highly ordered international politics of the post-Cold War era. Why might that be happening? Is it because institutions aren't working or something else? Join us for the next two episodes to learn more about the future of peace. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.